Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. It's uh, good to be back home. It is. We spent last weekend with the Flores family. Robert and Dee Dee and Annette and I have been friends for almost 35 or over 35 years. So we've journeyed through life together and ministry together and raising kids together, good times, bad times, the whole thing. So we flew down to uh, Pasadena, California, where last Sunday Robert's uh, daughter, Kristen, was married. A great celebration after the wedding was over. I text Robert and I said, you have to be deeply satisfied and thoroughly poor. And he said, yes, 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 I am. And uh, we had, we did, we had a great time, and so it was good to, and it is good in the summer seasons that we're able to celebrate, and it usually is this time where we have more graduations, more weddings, more uh, anniversaries, and so we want to spend time honoring people, because when we do that, we know we honor the Lord. Uh, Speaking of good weather, we had what, a day and a half? Was that what we had? I was trying to figure out the hours, about a day and a half in the middle of the week, but during that day and a half, uh, my grandkids came over, and they spent time with Annette in the backyard. My oldest granddaughter, my uh, daughter, granddaughter Ella, decided what she wanted to do was have a tea party. So she put a tea party on in the backyard, and um, she had one guest, who was her three-year-old brother. And I was looking at this and thinking, because Annette was sending me the pictures, how does a man stay manly during a girl tea party? I was just trying to work that through in my own head. And I thought, Jack, you've got to pull something off there. You've got to do something. Well, he's pretty quiet. He's pretty compliant. He was smiling the whole time. And Ella, of course, gives all the rules. She is the uh, matron, matron of the tea party. And she oversees all of it. So she's giving the rules. And she says, now this is what you do at a tea party. You keep your hands folded. You say, please and thank you. Uh, you, you, just, you don't talk loud. And, and she was giving these instructions. And then there was this pause. And it was the perfect opportunity for Jack to jump in and say something. And this is Jack's contribution to the rules of the tea party. He says, yeah, and you don't scratch either. So I thought, that's great. There it is. There's the, there's the contribution a man would make to a beautiful thing like that. It's probably what I would have said. And so uh, they, had a, they had a wonderful, wonderful tea party. He couldn't wait. He's sitting there. What you don't know about Jack right now is he's actually waiting for the trash guys to come. Uh, every Wednesday, he sits in the backyard and he waits for them to come because he likes to watch them do this. And so he mentioned to uh, his sister, he said, uh, Ella, the trash man's coming. She says, we're at a tea party right now. Just basically be quiet. You know, so she followed, uh, he followed those instructions. So we have a lot of good times, a lot of good times coming. And so I hope you enjoy uh, your good times as well. Do this with me if you would. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 together, and I'm excited about this because really for the past several weekends, we've been in a series titled Empowered for Life, a study in the book of Ephesians. And so far, we've covered chapters 1 through 3, but today something different happens. Today, there's changes that are made as we head into chapters 4 through 6. Because in chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul highlights for us the truths about where believers stand in Christ. And for the last several weeks, that's what we've been hearing. That's what we've been learning from the book of Ephesians. The truth about where we are in Jesus Christ. I mean, the reality of what Christ has done for us. And by the way, there's nothing you can do to secure those benefits that he gives to you. Those benefits are given to you by his grace and out of his love. 
But he wants you to know what is your foundation. I mean, what do you stand on? Well, what, what are the truths about that relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, it's kind of in, in, in first, uh, the first three chapters is kind of a status report on how we've been provided for in our relationship with God. You know, all the benefits that we've received when we trust in God as our Father in heaven. But beginning in chapter 4, the apostle changes gears because chapters 4 through 6 are about how we practice these truths in real life. I mean, what do these truths look like in real time? Living those out every single day. And not only how the individual believer practices these truths, but how we do this in a Holy Spirit-filled community like this one. So how do we do this together? That's really what Ephesians 4 through 6 is all about. Is how do you live together? How do you live this Holy Spirit-led life together? One of the concerns that I have today, and I'm going to be quite honest with you here, one of the concerns is we've had so much emphasis in the last decade especially put on individual experience that everything today is catered for the individual. And you see that. You know that. That everything is about the individual. And while we've done that, I think we've lost sight of community experience, of what it means to be part and parcel to and connected to a community of faith, a community of believers. And so we need to understand what that is and the fullness of that. And that's what Ephesians 4 through 6 talks to us about. Uh, We were at our Foursquare convention a few weeks ago. And uh, one of the speakers, David Kinneman, he's just a great leader in the body of Christ, he was sharing uh, about a tour that he had taken a- around the, uh, the uh, center, actually the, 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 the headquarters of the launch of the Apollo 13. And so they walk into this room, and of course now it's a museum, and they walk in this room, and it is banks of computers just everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. And they walk in the middle of this room, and the one giving the, uh, the tour said, I want all those that have your iPhones, pull those out just for a second. And several people did, and they held them in, a, in their hand. And he says, I want you to know right now, uh, you have ten times more power in your hand than we did when we launched the Apollo 13. It's amazing. The individual power that, that's given that, that really stresses individuality. I mean, you can go and find anything you want. You can do that right now. You don't even have to listen to what I'm saying. You can go and go Google something and just go off into your own world. You really can. And, and so it becomes very difficult in, in this day and age to be part of and understand the importance and the significance of being in community. We become more egocentric than we have community-centric. And I think that, 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 that we have to come back to the fact that we are part of the body of Christ, that we are part of a larger group, a larger family. In order for us to have a working grasp of how to live out the Christian life in chapters 4 through 6, I want to remind you of some of those foundational truths laid out for us in chapters 1 through 3. It's been so well and eloquently taught over the last several weeks. But essentially, what the Apostle Paul is saying is... Because God has provided these benefits for you, here's how you can live and influence others. Uh, Let me tell you some of those foundational truths that we need to know. Number one, God seals us with his Holy Spirit. You need to know that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul wants you to understand that. He wants that to be very clear to you. That's fundamental in your Christian life. That you're not left alone. He will not leave you or forsake you. 
but he's sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Secondly, God extends the immeasurable greatness of his power to us. And that's his resurrection power to us. And that we need to know that. It has to be a truth, a fundamental truth that we understand as believers in Jesus Christ. Thirdly is this. God saves us by his grace. I love that. I'm so thankful for that because there's nothing anyone in this room or anyone on this planet can do to secure their own salvation. Listen, when you're drowning, you can't save yourself. When you're lost, you can't find yourself. And I'm so thankful that we have a God that loves lost things. If you read the gospel and the teachings of Jesus, he loves lost things. And I was a lost thing and he found me. I was a prodigal and he brought me home. And he's done the same for many of us in this room. He loves lost things for by his grace we're saved. And then fourthly is this, God reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ. And therefore reconciles us to one another. Because of what God has done for you and me, we can now be reconciled to each other. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 talks to us about. It's really talking about breaking down the walls of prejudice. Whatever those walls are, whatever those classes are, those caste systems are that we live in today, Ephesians 2 says, let those barriers be broken because of what Jesus has done for us. Specifically, he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. And he's saying, listen, there's no room in the body of Christ for racism. There's no room in the body of Christ for prejudice. That that all that's been taken care of because God has reconciled you to the Father. In fact, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It goes further and says you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Everyone who's a believer in Christ has been given that ministry. You can't avoid it. It's part of who we are in our Christian walk and our Christian life. So here's the million dollar question that I want to throw out to you. Are we able to translate the truths of this mountaintop found in chapters 1 through 3 into, as my grandfather and father would say, into shoe leather in chapters 4 through 6? I knew right when I wrote shoe leather down it would date me. But that's uh, my father and my grandfather have said that. I've never said that before. Uh, But they've said that. Where does the rubber meet the road? And that's what 4 through 6 talks to us about. And so you can understand why I'm taking a little time setting this stage for you. Because you are making a change now. You're going to take what's been put into your head a little bit and into your heart a little bit. You're going to take that and now you're going to be responsible for living it out. I want to give you one last comparison of chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. It's been said that the book of Ephesians holds the same position theologically as the book of Joshua does in the Old Testament. Now think about that just for a moment. If you're aware of that and you understand the book of Joshua, I want you to think about these two books compared to each other. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. We come to the place, and here it is, we come to the place of crossing over in Ephesians chapter 4. Crossing over from the truths in chapters 1 through 3 to living out these truths in the spirit-filled life. Now think about it just for a moment. Joshua entered the land of promise on the basis of the promise that God made to his fathers. That God made a promise to Abraham, he made a promise to Isaac, to Jacob, uh, to, to Moses. And he said, this is the land that you will possess. It was his by right of promise. And he led the children of Israel over the Jordan River into the land. I love the analogy. It's a beautiful analogy. 
And there's really more to the story. Do you know both those crossings that you read about that the children of Israel had to to encounter and partake in, they're different. The Red Sea crossing is different than the Jordan crossing. I want to tell you the difference because it really matters when you read chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Ephesians. What Jesus was doing, what God was doing at that time in their lives is he was saying, okay, I, I provided for you. I provided everything for you. I opened the Red Sea. You crossed. I killed your enemies. You got out in the desert. I provided, I, I provided heat by a, 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 a pillar of fire. I provided covering and shadow by the cloud by day. And I even gave you food to eat. It was called manna. For those that may know that term, they didn't even know what it meant. And they said that because manna means what is it? It really means, what is this stuff? I mean, that's sometimes what God does for us. He provides, and your response is, what is this? How'd that happen? He provides everything for them. And now there's another crossing. It's the crossing of Jordan, but it's going to be different. And God signifies that it's going to be different by uh, the way they cross. He's saying, you know what? I provided everything for you up to this point. But now you're going to have to dig in. You're going to have to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to be part of taking this promise that I've given to you and to your fathers and to your father's fathers. So what does he do? He says, I want the elders to lead in the Jordan. Let them go out with the ark, the presence of God. And when they touch the waters, the waters will part. What's that indicating? It's indicating that it's going to be us participating, that the children of Israel were going to be participating. That it wasn't going to be just easy. It wasn't going to be a rollover. I mean, the enemies weren't going to just say, hey, okay, guys, come on in. Make yourself at home. There was going to be a battle. There was going to be a fight for the land. And that's what Ephesians 6 is. It tells us, here's our promises. So when you go in and you take those promises, know that there's going to be a battle. Put on the whole armor of God. And when you've done everything to stand, you stand fast. Because those are your promises. They've been given to you. And you see this wonderful analogy, this wonderful comparison of taking the promise of God. Passing over the Jordan has always been symbolic of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in these next three chapters, Paul is inviting us by way of the Holy Spirit to cross over. He's inviting everyone to cross over and possess the land of promise that is rightfully yours. Promises meant for your children. Take them. Promises meant for your marriage. Take them. Promises meant for your family. Take them. Possess the land. Promises meant for your church community, this family. Take them. They're meant for you. God gave us promises for our children and our family before we ever met them, before we ever saw them. Before they were even conceived, the Lord gave us a promise for our children, and it hasn't been easy. It's not an easy thing to do, but we're fighting, we're standing, and after we've done everything to stand, we stand fast. Friends, this is the time of taking what is rightfully yours. You have been given a promise, and that promise and those promises are found right here in this wonderful epistle called Ephesians. Take what is yours. God has secured it for you. He's given it to you. I want you to do this with me. I, I, I want to take a moment. Just stop just for a moment. And I want to seal what's been said here up to this point just with prayer and a declaration in our own hearts that we are saying we are people of promise, that we are crossing over, that we are going to possess the promises for our children, for our marriage, for our families, for our church, for our community. We 
are going to put on the armor of God and we're going to do after doing everything to stand, we stand fast in Jesus' name. Say amen to that. Bow your head just for a moment. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. I come to you right now even with my hands over my heart and I covenant with you to take the promises that you have given me that I would not be timid, that I would not be fearful, that I would have the courage and the fulfillment and infilling of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for everyone in this room. You have given parents promises about their children. You've given grandparents promises about their grandchildren. You have given marriages promises about their spouses. And I pray in Jesus' name that even this very moment, not tomorrow or the next day, but this very moment there would be breakthroughs in us Securing the promises of God. What was once just here and said and stated as a truth becomes a reality that we experience and we live out because of a faithful God. Because of a God who has gone before us. A God who comes behind us. A God who puts a hedge of protection around us. We stand faithful in the power and strength of our almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray and we say together, Amen. Amen. Say that again, Amen. Amen. That, that's a real thing spiritually. That's not just something the church made up. You know, when you say amen, amen means this. What I've just heard and what we've just declared, so be it, not only in heaven, but so be it on earth. So those promises that you've just prayed for, those people that you've just put into that realm of promise that's found here, you've just secured it. You say amen, so be it, so be it. Today, so be it in Jesus' name. Walk in those promises. Now I want you to listen to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Great verses. Uh, By the way, when I stepped into this chapter, talking it over as we always do with a group of uh, of our pastors, we just kind of go in and dive in and talk about things. And I said, well, I think I can do uh, verses 1 through 20. And uh, I looked at it and I said, no, I think I better pare it down. uh, To verses like 1 through 10. And then I no, I better pare it down to 1 through 6. Well, we've got three. We've got three verses. And that's what we're going to... We're going to cover here today because there's so much in these three verses. And I want to bring these to you. I want, I want these to be extracted for you so you can see the influence here, the power of God's word. Number one, uh, verse one in Ephesians four goes like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now I want you to look at that word. Do you see that word then or in some translations it says therefore? Make sure you understand this. I've already repeated it but I'm going to say it again. This is a connective, a transitional word. And what it's saying is okay everything that I've talked about. The Apostle Paul is saying everything that I've talked about up to here. Verse chapters 1 through 3. Because you know this now. Because you understand this now. Then therefore, let's move on. But it's connected to what you've already heard, what you already have absorbed. Paul is saying that in view of all that God has done for the believer, which we have uh, seen in the first three chapters, he says, notice, and I want you to see this, notice how Paul identifies himself. This is so important for me to see you understand this. Paul identifies himself not as an apostle, not as a great church leader, but he says, as a prisoner for the Lord. I mean, when I read that, I just stopped there and honestly spent two days on that phrase, as a prisoner of the Lord. 
what is the Apostle Paul saying to us when he declares himself as a prisoner of the Lord? And by the way, when was the last time you said that about yourself? (laughs) Or the last time I said that about myself? When someone says, oh, who are you? Oh, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. How, How many have heard that or even said that? Paul states this. He says, I want everyone to know that my claim to fame, that really what I'm all about is I'm a prisoner for the Lord. This is what I hear Paul saying. And listen and tell me if you don't hear the same thing. I, I choose, he's saying, I choose to make Jesus my sole keeper. I refuse to allow anyone or anything else to control my life. That I'm totally and completely under the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. I refuse to be victimized by my circumstances. I am in a place of safety, not under another person, not to an institute, not to my past. Jesus is my warden. Jesus is in the Greek or in the Aramaic, he's my sheriff. What it means is he's the overseer of this principality. I've given him the keys to my life. He is the keeper of my keys, for I'm a prisoner of Christ. And that I've totally surrendered to him, that I've given him everything. I've given him the keys of my life. Keys are important things. Keys unlock doors. They they get us places that we wouldn't otherwise get. We need keys to get there. And I know this about my life. I'm not really quick and... It's not really easy for me to surrender the keys of my life to anyone. Because I think I have all the answers. I think I know exactly where I want to go and what I want to do. And when I get there, I'll just find my keys and I'll try to open my doors and I'll get what I want. And I'll do the things that I want and I'll live the way that I want. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I take those keys, all these earthly desires that I have, and I say, I'm giving them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the keeper of my keys. He's my warden. He's my sheriff. I'm under his jurisdiction. My dad, uh, you know this, was a PE teacher, a football coach. and We used to walk around with him when we were little, and he had keys. And I thought he was really important when he had keys. I thought when he didn't have keys, he was okay. But when he had keys, man, he was an important guy. Remember those keys? You used to clip them right here, and it had that whoop, whoop. I, wonder the, I always say that. I don't even know what it's called. I just say whoop, whoop. I hope they can hear that on the tape. <clears throat> But I'd walk behind him and pull on those. It had a chain. And I used to play with him at home. And I think, man, my dad, he's an important guy because he has keys. You know, what I found out later is I try not to have too many keys because there's so much responsibility that comes with keys. You know how much weight comes with keys? Especially when you're carrying your own keys and you're trying to unlock your own doors and you're trying to make your way up the ladder and you're trying to get done what you want to get done. Do you know how much pressure's on you? I'll tell you how much pressure. You can't bear the pressure. That's why we fold. So the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I know something about life. I can never be a good keeper of my own keys. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Says Jesus, here are the keys. Here are the keys to my dreams, the keys to my family, the keys to breakthrough, the keys to deliverance. I give them to you. You are the keeper of these keys. And I think what we're being told here in this one phrase, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ or a prisoner for the Lord, is he's inviting you to give your keys over to him. That you can say the same thing with authenticity and with integrity. You can say, I am a prisoner 
for the Lord. Because I've given him the keys of my life. He controls everything that I have. Paul understood a fundamental principle in the Christian life. When I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I am in the safest, most blessed place in the world, even if it's in prison. Wow. Do, do, you, do you know this? And, and maybe you know this about yourself because I know this about me. If I'm in prison, uh, what I'm thinking about every day is getting out. I don't want to be there. I don't want to stay there. That was not the Apostle Paul's mindset. The Apostle Paul's mindset was this. I'm here today. He's the keeper of my keys. He is my warden. I will fulfill the gospel call and message right now in this jail cell today. See, some of us go through stinky places in life. Some of us are doing that right now. You're in what seems like a jail cell, and what you're saying is, I gotta get out, I gotta get out, I gotta get out. And I wanna tell you this, maybe what you need to do is stop and say, okay, wait a minute, let's put this aside. I'm here right now. Jesus Christ, the power of your spirit, would you come into this cell? Would you fill this cell? So there'll be praise and worship and the, the people in the cell will be saved and the doors will be broken open and there will be a time, but it will be an appointed time only by God that you are released to move on to the next place in life. Maybe your cell needs to be a church. Maybe your cell needs to be a celebration right now, as difficult as that sounds, but you're saying, I need to, and as the Apostle Paul says, I need to learn everything I can learn while I'm right here. I cannot move on because he's the keeper of my keys. When it's time, he'll unlock the doors. And he'll do it in a fabulous way, an unmistakable way. You will know when he opens the doors. Believe me, you will know. Amen? Amen. So be it. Wow. I love what it says here. Paul goes on with this encouragement. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. I want you to pay attention to that word urge or in another translation, beseech. It's the same word the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It is not a command. I want you to hear this. Paul is not making a command. He does in other places. He makes commands in other parts of his epistles, but he's not making a command here. He's saying, I urge you. What is this? It is a gentle invitation of love. That's what this is. As he says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you, I invite you gently with great love, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I urge you. I don't command you. I invite you in. Because he knows this. That invitation will change your life. If you accept that invitation today... It will change your life. If you haven't accepted it before and you accept it today, it will change your life, radically change your life. But he's saying, I urge you to come into this. We're urged to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What calling is he talking about? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who's received that gift of salvation, now Uh, lives in a new kingdom. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul urges us to walk worthy of the gospel. Now, people may not tell you this, but they're watching you. Uh, you, 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 You're getting watched more than you think. You have more eyes on you. If you knew how many eyes were on you, you'd you'd be really uncomfortable. 
Because this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, it's just not what you say. It's just how you live and even how you live in this prison cell that you're in right now. He's saying, I, I want you to know that you're being watched. And how do you respond? Are, are, are you real? Are you authentic? I mean, it's going to come out when things get difficult. Something happened to me about four or six weeks ago. Uh, and it's never happened to me before. It's kind of strange. I was at another place. I was a guest speaker. And I got heckled. You know, I've never been heckled. Well, you've heckled me a few times. But other than that, I've really never been heckled. I mean, not seriously heckled. Not in church. And I was thinking to myself, I could hear this going on. And in me, I'm thinking, okay, remember, you are you're worthy of your call. Walk worthy of your call. Walk worthy of your call. What is your call? Your call is in Christ Jesus. It's the good news. It's the gospel. Do not go strangle her. Just do not do it. Don't say anything mean. Don't do anything nasty. Just hold back and walk worthy of the call in which you've been called. I mean, it comes out. It comes out when you least expect it. This is about how you walk. It's not only how you walk, it's where you walk. Where are you walking today? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Are, are you walking in the light? Because it really does matter where you're walking. Are you walking in shadows? Are you walking in darkness? Are you walking in rubbage? It, it, uh, what, it matters. And Paul is telling us, John the apostle is telling us, walk in the light. As he is in the light. You know, there was a man that was handing out tracts. I heard this story and he gave one to a man who couldn't read or write. He said, here, I want you to have a track." And the man, he said, what is this? And he said, it's a track." And he said, well, I can't read the track." But I'll watch your tracks. We are living epistles. Your tracks are, are being watched. And then verses uh, 2 and 3, and let me read this to you. I love this. It says, As, uh, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul is telling us what our mindset should be as we live out our call. He's saying, as you live out this call that's been given you, how do you do that? What should your mindset be? Number one, be completely humble. (laughs) I like the way he said the emphasis here. It doesn't say just be humble. It says, hey, be completely humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. This is the opposite of pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. I live with a woman who has a pridometer. She knows when the pridometer's drifting over into pride and arrogance, and she says it's drifting over into pride and arrogance. And I say, Oh man, be completely humble. You know, you need people like that in your life. If you don't, I feel sorry for you because you'll be arrogant and you won't even know it. You need a spouse to tell you, well, your kids always tell you. Or find a way to tell you. We need to be completely humble in this call. That we're walking in with humility. That we would walk with humility. And I I wish they would teach more of this. I wish they would teach this more in schools and seminaries and churches. Be humble before you're smart. We want to teach people to be smart and they never get humble. 
I think one of the first lessons we should be teaching is here, walk completely humble, walk completely in humility. And then as you do that, I'll tell you what, the wisdom and intellect you gain will be amazing. It'll have a great influence. Humility is the flagship of all Christian virtues. That's what it says in Philippians 2, 3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. That's what humility does. It does value others above yourself. There seems to be a lot of pride out there today. Pride about where we live. Pride about who we are. Pride about even grace, the the church. We have pride about, oh, we did this and we did that. Listen, this is all done because of Jesus Christ. He's made a way for us. There was a tour being taken in Germany of Beethoven's house and there were probably 15 or 20 people walking through this house and the the tour guide was walking through the different rooms. You could imagine, if you're especially a musician, uh, what that would have felt like, what that would have been like to be in Beethoven's home. And so they walked around and and they went to this place, this one room that was really set aside. It was the coup de croix. It was the room of rooms because in that room was Beethoven's piano. And the, the tour guide then asked the whole group, how many want to come and play Beethoven's piano? Everyone ran to the piano just to play a few bars, a few right? Just, just, just to touch the piano, except one person. One person stood back. He didn't go to play the piano. And the tour guide looked and he says, why aren't, why aren't you coming? He says, I, I'm not worthy to touch those keys, the keys that Beethoven touched. It was the great Polish pianist, Paderewski. He wouldn't touch it. The man who was probably the most qualified to touch the keys on the piano did not touch the keys on the piano. To, to me, that, that's humility. That's humility. And then it says to be gentle. Or meek is another translation. Meekness does not mean weakness. How many know that? It's not what it means. Meekness is the harnessing of the power or influence that you have. You can, but you choose not to for the good of others. That's meekness. Meekness is you can if you want to, but you're saying I'm not going to do this because if I do this, this doesn't bless others. This does not help others. It's like when Jesus was on the cross and he was being taunted and they said, go ahead, if you're the son of God, then take yourself down from that cross. And believe me, he had the power to do it at that moment, but he was meek. He harnessed that power and he said, I will not do that because it will not redeem others. He came to the place of the cross so redemption would be fulfilled for you and me. That's meekness. It's amazing when you're around meek people. There's something after a while you get to know them and you think, wow, they, they got more horsepower than I thought. They just choose the godly places, the wise places to use that horsepower. That's really what meekness is all about. Meekness or gentleness is bowing yourself to the will of God. What does God want at this moment? This next one is be patient. And I wanted to hurry up through that right there uh, because this really, none of these are really great strengths for me, but this one I thought, why do you put this here? Be patient. Let's just, let's go. I don't want to read this. I don't want to talk about this, but I'm going to tell you what, this is an incredible virtue. This means to have a long temper as opposed to a short temper. 
And I know myself. I, I know how I'm wired. I know how I, I, I was influenced when I was growing up. When I was growing up, I had an extremely short temper. And if you knew me then, and that's why I moved out of the state uh, to, to get away from the people that knew that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but if you knew me then, it was a very, very short, very short temper. And, and in, in my heart, I'm so thankful every day that a miracle's been done. Because if you were to go back to the people who knew me prior to Christ, and, 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 they, and they were told that he has a long temper now, he's pretty patient, it would just blow them away. Listen, you have to invite. The only way this can happen in your life is inviting the Holy Spirit in to teach you the lessons that you need to be taught. Patience is an incredible virtue. And can I say this? I think it's an incredible virtue, and I didn't add that. I didn't put this in last night. I think it's an incredible virtue for everyone, but I'm going to single some people out. This is an incredible virtue for men to have. You do set the tone in your home. Without you, as someone who's long-suffering and is patient, it's hard. And I pray for patience in all of our lives. And listen, I'm not saying, you know what? I'm saying, look at me. I'm saying that to you because you're looking at someone who doesn't by nature have that. So I can say it. I'm leveraging my stuff on you. Because I know exactly what it feels like. I know exactly what it is. And I'll tell you this. I'll take sometimes longer to get something done when I know my patience is short. It drives my wife nuts sometimes. <clears throat> what are you doing? I said, I'm counting to ten. You know, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for God to do something. I need a breakthrough. Because I know, if that, if, if I know this. If I do this and I'm not patient, I am going to destroy people. I will destroy people. I'll destroy the, their self-image. I'll destroy the way they, they've been created in God's eyes. And I will have nothing to do with that. Be patient, men. And then bearing with one another in love, uh, I think. And when I moved on, all the guys went, wow, I'm glad he moved on. I am too, by the way. So I, I think the evidence of this virtue is shown when we forgive those who have offended us. That's bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love isn't when you really like everybody and you have a great party and you think everybody's cool and neat and ooh, we like each other. Are we great together and this is wonderful? That's not bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is when you're going nose to nose and you just don't like each other. That's bearing with one another in love. And I think forgiveness is the great quality of bearing with one another. It's the evidence. It's the fruit that you are bearing with one another in love. C.S. Lewis said it this way. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. He gets to the point. Verse 3, and I'm going to finish with this. Verse 3 is make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's only the Holy Spirit that makes true unity. You know that. You, can't, you can try to contrive that. The world is going to say peace, peace, and there will be no peace. Everyone's trying to look for peace. They're trying to look for pockets of peace. It will not authentically ever happen unless the Holy Spirit is present. He is the, the primary ingredient, the number one. He's center to peace. Now, what do we do? What's our responsibility? When the Holy Spirit is there and he brings authentic unity, it's ours to maintain that. It's ours not to disrupt it. 
It's almost ours not to lose. Does that make sense? That when the Holy Spirit has created unity in your home and your relationships, then what he's saying is maintain that unity. Let that unity grow. And I want to say this. When you are under, listen, when you are under the direction and influence of God's Holy Spirit, you cannot say what you want to say. Please understand that. Even if you think it's true, if the Holy Spirit puts a check in your life, in your heart, it may not be truth at the right time. It may be truth in anger. It may come out in a lot of different ways, which covers up the real truth. Have you ever noticed that? The point is lost if we're not doing this with grace. If we're not maintaining the bond of peace in relationship. God instructs us to do that through his word And that's where he's leading us. I love Ephesians 4 through 6. We learn how to live. Before God and with each other. Can you say amen? Take the hands of the people next to you. You don't have to cross the aisles. But just do that. Father, this is um, a community that you have created. A community of believers that along with so many other wonderful and great communities around Uh, this area, around this community, around this nation, around the world, we have chosen to walk in unity that you give us. And, And we remember that bond of peace that can only come from you. You are the one who brings authentic peace and unity. We can never do anything to make it up on our own. In fact, we would destroy. But we come to you and we say, Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill this community. Fill the people that whose hands we hold, the right and the left, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Let us walk worthy of the call in which we've been called. We take the invitation to live life worthy of the calling that you have given to us, that we've received. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. And we say amen again. Amen. I want you to go ahead and stand with me. And as you stand, those that are on our prayer teams, our care teams, if you would take your place around this uh, sanctuary and after we're done if you need someone to pray with you if you need uh, healing in your life or provision or whatever it is your breakthroughs whatever it is go and receive prayer we've seen the Lord do some amazing miracles over the last eight or ten weeks because of your obedience because you're walking in faith don't be prideful don't let pride get in the way but walk in humility and when you do the flow and the grace of God is extraordinary Let's sing this together. Make this a proclamation before we leave the building. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.